Well, I'm so glad that you're here with us on this Sunday. We have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Abraham Joseph, and I think many of you are familiar with him. Uh, he has been here before. In fact, they were part of our church before they went to the Philippines, where Abraham is the director of academic programs and academic dean at the International Graduate School of Leadership in the Philippines. This is a significant work that God is doing. They have uh, students from over 20 different countries, Asian countries, that come for training, whether that be vocational training as Christian leaders or in to go into uh, secular employment. And it is a distinct privilege to have Abraham with us. So, Abraham, would you come? We're so thankful to have you back at the pulpit of Fellowship Bible Church. Let's give Abraham a hand. Thank you. Preach the word. Morning, Fellowship. Good to be with you all. Uh, thank you for praying for us while we are in the Philippines. Thank you for uh, caring for our daughter, Abigail, who is part of your church here. Um, and it appears that our son, Andrew, may be with you all for a while as well. Uh, thank you for, uh, again, for your uh, ministry of prayer for us. Before we go to God's Word, uh, let's go to Him in prayer. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what a grand privilege it is for us to come into your presence to worship you. One thing that all creation will do one day, but we already have this privilege of coming into your presence. This morning, Father, as we look into your word, we pray that you would teach us by your spirit, for we ask in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My wife advised me to set my stopwatch on so that uh, I stay on time. It helped me in the first service. Hopefully, If you pray with me, it'll work in the second service as well. Stories. Who here doesn't like stories? We all grow up with stories. Uh, Daddy, tell me a story is often the bedtime routine for many children. And we don't stop. Uh, We grow up and we binge on stories on Netflix, uh, especially during times of pandemic. What is it about stories that attract us so much? Uh, Stories... Engage the whole person. It engages our mind, affects our emotions. They may even be informative. We learn things from stories. But then there are these big stories, big picture stories. They call them meta narratives. These are the stories, foundational stories of reality, as may be seen by these stories, uh, that form our identity. These are the stories that uh, inform our values, our hopes, our expectations. There are many such stories, the stories of modernism, for example. Uh, tells of unending scientific progress and humanity getting better and better and better. Uh, then there are stories of postmodernism that tells of stories of nihilism, of dystopian tales. There are economic stories of capitalism and socialism and communism, of what is good for all society. Every nation has its own story about its people. These are the stories from which we live. What is your story? What story forms the narrative from which you live? from which you hope, from which your expectations are set, from which your values rise. If we look at those things that tell us what story we are living from. The scriptures also come to tell a story, a big picture story. This is the big story of the whole world, the true story. The story that ought to inform our identity. Form our identity, ought to inform our values, set our expectations and hopes. This is the story of the one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the story of the one God who created and rules over all things that exist. 
This is the story of that one God who did not destroy his creation, even though uh, humanity, the crown of his creation, rebelled against him and committed treason. This is the story of that one God who, at great cost to himself, redeems his fallen creation. And this story is not over yet because that story goes on to say that one day the same God will restore all things, make all things new, and he himself will dwell with his people. This big picture story, this story of God is our story as well. This is the story that ought to form our identity, inform our values, and set our hopes and our expectations. Only when this story forms a narrative from which we live, our, our worlds are ordered correctly. All other narratives will disappoint and even destroy. But all of Scripture comes together to tell the story, starting from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And all of Scripture ought to be read in light of this big picture story, whether uh, reading it as a whole or in its parts. Every passage of Scripture is part of this big picture story, and we don't understand that passage unless we have understood it as to how it functions in that big picture story. Uh, it's my uh, humble opinion that the evangelical church finds itself in all kinds of trouble today because it has forgotten the big picture story and has a fragmented idea of scriptures uh, full of inspirational heroes, uh, moralistic living uh, rules, and maybe even pragmatic principles of how to have a good marriage, how to raise, raise good children, and so on. None of them are bad in themselves, but none of them make sense unless they are seen in light of God's purposes in the big story that He tells in His Word. This morning we are going to look at a story from the book of Acts. And this story too is understood only when it is placed in its proper place within the big story of the Scriptures, the story of God. The book of Acts tells the story how, of how the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is Lord of all the earth, spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And this big story of Acts is also made up of small stories. We know the stories of Peter and Paul and so on. But there are lots of other people in the book of Acts, more than 40-some people, whose smaller stories come together to form this big story of the progress of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 1, the risen Lord Jesus appears to his disciples and teaches them about the kingdom of God. And they have a question. Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus answers their question with a programmatic statement. He says, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Father's promised Holy Spirit to come upon you. And then you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Uh, notice two things here. Jesus does not deny that the kingdom is going to be restored. It is going to be restored, but what he does is he extends the scope of the kingdom. Are you going to extend the, uh, restore the kingdom to Israel? No, not just Israel, even to the ends of the earth, and you are going to be my witnesses. And as he promised, the Lord Jesus who is ascended and exalted to the right hand of the Father, we read in chapter 2, he is Lord in Christ, he receives from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, whom he pours out on his people, and the Spirit-empowered people are his witnesses. Jerusalem, 3,000 people in, books, in, in chapter 2 come to Christ. And we, by the time we come to chapter 7, Jerusalem and Judea in large numbers have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah, as God's anointed. But Judea and Jerusalem only form one part of Israel, the, northern, the southern kingdom. There's more to Israel before it was divided after Solomon, the northern kingdom. 
And that's what Samaria is. So Israel is not restored till Samaria also come to the, comes to the Lord Jesus. And that's what we find in chapter 8 in verses 1 through 25. We find that Samaria too turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, Israel is being restored under the lordship of the new King David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what remains are the ends of the earth. And that story of the ends of the earth coming to Jesus will start in chapter 10 with the conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile, and then going all the way to Rome. But between that, between the conversion of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria being restored under the lordship of Jesus, and before the inclusion of the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius in chapter 10, we find the story that we are going to look at this morning, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. How does this story function in the progression of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth? How, what is the... What does the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch have to do with God's big story of creation, redemption, and restoration? And importantly, we often ignore, is how is this story of this Ethiopian eunuch our story as well? Please turn, me, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 26 to 40. Acts 8, 26 to 40. We read in verse 26 and the beginning of verse 27, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. As much as the restoration of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria was by divine initiative, so also is the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. The initiative in salvation does not belong to the evangelist or to the evangelized. Although both are involved, salvation is of the Lord. It belongs completely to the Lord. He is the one who begins and completes the work of salvation, whether it's to large people groups or even to a single individual. We said chapter 8 begins with the dispersal of the church from Jerusalem. Saul begins this great persecution against the church after the martyrdom of Stephen. And the people who are dispersed from Jerusalem, wherever they go, they go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And Philip, the evangelist, we saw him as the deacon of Acts chapter 6. He finds himself in Samaria, and God does a mighty work through him. An entire crowd of Samaritans from that town turn to the Lord Jesus and are saved. Philip plays a major role in the progression of the gospel. A breakthrough, not just to Jerusalem and Judea, but even the Samaritans. God has brought to himself through this evangelist. What remains in the program is now the ends of the earth to turn to the Lord Jesus. After such an astounding ministry to a whole town, uh, you would expect that God would send Philip to bigger and greater things. But that's not what we find in verse 26. Angel of the Lord tells Philip to go to a deserted road, some 50 miles south of Jerusalem, to a deserted town at that time, Gaza. God sends his choice servant to the middle of nowhere in the middle of the day uh, in that region in the scorching heat at that time. Yeah, it doesn't make any, uh, you know, it defies logic. Who would send a prominent evangelist to the middle of nowhere uh, at, a, at the wrong time of the day? The God of salvation. The sovereign God of salvation. It is he who directs the paths of his servants, whether they are apostles or evangelists or you or me. So Philip finds himself 
in the middle of a desert, uh, deserted road. But two things we need to observe. First, it was not Philip's strategy or his plan that drives this story. It is God who sends the evangelists through the angel of the Lord. It is God who moves apostles and evangelists as the gospel proceeds from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. But the second thing we need to notice is that while it is not Philip's initiative to go to the middle of nowhere, a place where he would not have normally gone, he obeys and he goes, trusting in God's purposes. Success in ministry is obedience to God's calling. Whether that, call, that calling is to a town full of Samaritans or to some deserted road in the middle of nowhere at the wrong time of the day. Philip obeys. And what does he find there? We read in verse, the rest of verse 27 and verse 28. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip is not alone in this road. Uh, on this road, there's, God has arranged a divine encounter for him. The, the verse in the original language begins with a, Behold, look, there's somebody else. And, Philip, and Luke piles on the detail about this person that Philip encounters. But even with all this uh, detail, there's a lot of ambiguity about this man. First, we, Philip tells us, uh, Luke tells us that he was an Ethiopian. Ethiopian back in that day, in the ancient times, was considered the ends of the earth. Uh, it doesn't quite correspond with present-day uh, political Ethiopia. It was the general region south of Egypt, comprising of what we call Sudan and Eritrea and Ethiopia today. The scriptures anticipate that one day the Ethiopians will turn to the God of Israel. Psalm 68, Zephaniah 3 expects that even Ethiopians will become the people of God. While Luke tells us that he's an Ethiopian, he doesn't tell us whether he's an Ethiopian Jew or Gentile. Uh, you may not have entertained the thought that he could be a Jew, uh, but there's lots of reason why he's not a Gentile. He's possibly not a Gentile, because in Luke's telling of the story of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the Gentiles, the story of the gospel going to the Gentiles begins with Cornelius in chapter 10. Luke will devote two full chapters to the conversion of Cornelius, chapter 10 and chapter 11. And if that wasn't enough, he would give another summary of Cornelius' conversion in chapter 15. In chapter 15, verse 7, Peter declares, You know, to the other disciples, apostles, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So it was Peter's words to Cornelius that begins the conversion of the Gentiles, not Philip's word to this Ethiopian as we're going to find. So if, Philip, if Luke is going to give all of these details about the conversion of Gentiles, starting with Cornelius, he's not going to upend that account by having another Gentile converted before Cornelius. But what is this story doing here then? We have Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria already have turned to the Lord, and the Gentiles are coming starting with Cornelius in chapter 10. While the geographic origin of this man is important, that's not the focus of this passage. What Luke says next about him is what is important. The second thing Luke says about, us, about this man is that he was a eunuch. We are told once in this passage that he was an Ethiopian, but we are told five times in this passage that he was a eunuch. 
chapter 8, verse 27, verse 34, verse 36, verse 38, and verse 39. Actually, five out of the six times this word occurs in the New Testament that's translated eunuch, five out of the six times are found in the passage we're looking at today. That he was a eunuch also doesn't tell us whether he's a Jew or Gentile, but it does say much about what he went and did. Being a eunuch prevents him from entering into the inner courts of the temple. Being a eunuch prevented him from going beyond the court of the Gentiles. Why? Because the law, Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 tells us, No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. Even if he was a Gentile, he could not even have become a proselyte because Deuteronomy 23.1 keeps him uh, from coming into the assembly of the Lord. He's an outcast from among the people of God. And that's why his story is here. The God who brought Jews from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaritans into his people, into his kingdom, is not going to leave the outcast behind. Before the Gentiles could be included among God's people, God is going to bring outcasts into his kingdom as well. And that's what this story is doing here. Philip gives us more details. He tells us that he was a court official of the Queen Candace of uh, the Ethiopians. He's the secretary of the treasury, the CFO of the Queen of Ethiopia. Castrated males, eunuchs, uh, post no sexual threat. So they were often trusted officials given charge over the harems of rulers or high offices in the court of female rulers. What we have here is a powerful man, but a despised man. He was a man of high political office and standing, but an emasculated male, subject to humiliation. The fourth thing that Luke tells us is very important for the interpretation of this passage. He tells us that he was returning from Jerusalem, having come there to worship God. This man is returning from the temple in Jerusalem, having gone there to worship God. But since he was a eunuch, he would have been kept at a distance. He could not have proceeded past the court of the Gentiles to worship God. He had traveled five months almost what it takes to go from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, only to be kept at a distance. His high office would not have granted him any more proximity than he had from the court of the Gentiles, which was actually outside the the temple proper. He can only approach God from a distance. He's an outcast. His rank, his office can't save him from his humiliation. He's prevented from an intimate relationship with God. Fifthly, Luke tells us he was traveling by a chariot. Uh, Don't get the picture of a war chariot drawn by horses. This is more like a passenger carriage drawn by oxen, big enough for three people as we see in this passage, and also slow enough that Philip could actually run alongside this carriage. But this detail tells us that he's a man of means. He is able able to afford private transportation all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem and back. He's a well-to-do individual. Final detail Luke gives us is that this man was reading from the prophet Isaiah. He had in his possession the Isaiah scroll. Today many of us have multiple copies of the Bible in our home, in our car. But back then, you had to be a person of means even to own uh, the scroll of a single book of the scriptures. And this man had in his possession the Isaiah scroll. And not only that, we see that he's an educated man. He's able to read. So what we have here is a wealthy yet very devout man. But he's also a man of ethnic, religious, 
and sexual ambiguity. But there is nothing ambiguous about God's plans for this man, as we are going to find out. Next verse, in verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. God didn't just get Philip started and leave him on his own. Every step of the way, uh, this is a God-directed encounter. It was the angel of the Lord who sent him into the desert road. Now the Spirit tells Philip, Go, catch him. An instruction that is given to a man who is called to be the fisher of men. We are reminded again that the primary player in this, uh, uh, play, in this passage is God himself. This is an entirely divinely orchestrated event. A divine seeking after to save an outcast from his humiliation and grant him a place with the sons and daughters of the kingdom of God. The popular praise song tells us, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, it chases down the outcast on a desert road to draw him into his grace. He will not leave behind the ones he has chosen for himself. How does Philip respond? We read in verses 30 and 31, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with them. All the details here are important. Philip obediently runs alongside of the chariot and he hears the traveler reading aloud as was the custom back then and still is in many parts of the world. Uh, And he was reading a passage of scripture from his scroll. uh, And there are four questions from here on that advance this story. Philip asks the first question. The remaining three will be asked by the eunuch. So Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? That's a bold question to ask a stranger, uh, and a stranger of some means at that. It's obvious that the eunuch is able to read. However, reading is not the same as understanding. Even with all his health, uh, wealth, education, and devotion, he is unable to understand the scriptures. And he humbly and readily acknowledges the need for someone to guide him. Now we assume that the scriptures are self-explanatory to anyone who is able to read them. But reading and understanding are two different things. Scriptures are always given to God's people to be taught. Even the Great Commission is to teach them to obey all things that I have commanded you. Also worth observing from these verses is the position of the evangelized and the evangelist. The evangelist takes the more humble role of going, running alongside the carriage and uh, he enters into this alien space at the invitation of the, unevangel- the, the unbeliever, uh, enters into an uncomfortable space to answer questions that are posed to him. Quite often we think of evangelism as inviting unbelievers to places that are familiar to us. But here we find an evangelist entering into uh, a strange space, someone else's space, at their invitation, and ready to answer their questions. So what is... So what was the eunuch reading? We read in verses 32 and 33. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The larger context of this passage that uh, the, that Philip heard the eunuch reading is Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to 53, verse 12. 
which speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord, a servant who suffers humiliation and affliction, who is denied justice, who is treated as an outcast, and is eventually put to death. But we, told, we are told that he suffered and died vicariously for our sake. And therefore, God not only vindicates him, but God exalts this servant. The eunuch can relate to this suffering servant. He knows humiliation. He knows affliction. He knows the denial of justice. He knows what it means to be treated as an outcast. And no wonder he will ask the question that he asks. we see in the next passage. If the eunuch had read ahead in his scroll, he also knows that it is through this suffering servant that God will bring all kinds of people to himself. A passage that is in close proximity to this one, Isaiah 53, is Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, verse 3 to 5, there's a great word of hope for this eunuch. We read in 56, 3 to 5, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Verse 8 of 56, we read, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather it others to him besides those already gathered. These passages from the prophet are necessary to, ident- uh, to understand this story from Acts chapter 8. Actually, all of Acts, of Acts the book of Acts, is uh, it's a book about how God is fulfilling all the promises that he had made, starting uh, from even Eve and Abraham and through the prophets. The God who gathered Judea and Samaria into the kingdom of his beloved son will not leave the outcast behind because he has promised through his prophet that he will bring even outcasts, eunuchs, into his kingdom to give them a place as sons and daughters. That's what the story about. But why didn't the eunuch understand that? What was the cause of his lack of comprehension? Verse 34, eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? We come to the third question in this passage. The eunuch is not able to comprehend the identity of this servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah. Who is the prophet referring to, he asks. Those of us who know Christ, we have no problem identifying the suffering servant of Isaiah with our Lord Jesus Christ. However, only those who know Jesus Christ are able to identify him in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, and lead others to the knowledge of Christ. The eunuch is interested in the suffering servant of whom he has just read in the Isaiah scroll uh, because it is through this humiliated servant who has been vindicated and exalted by God will be the fulfillment of God's promise to restore eunuch. So he asks, who is this humiliated one? Who is this one who suffers vicariously for our sake? Who is this one who redeems the outcast by his suffering? This is a question from every passage of Scripture. Any passage we study or preach from, we need to say, who is this writer speaking of? More specifically, for this passage, and even for all of Scripture, the question that is to be asked is, who is this one that is the hope of the world? Hope for you and for me. Jesus is the key to understanding 
all of Scripture and the parts thereof. If we listen to a passage uh, being read or the passage we study, if we don't get to Jesus, we don't understand that passage of Scripture and how it functions within the big story. Philip can answer the eunuch's question because Philip knows Jesus. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The man who preached the gospel to the entire town of Samaritans now preaches the same good news to a single individual, the Ethiopian eunuch in the middle of nowhere on a deserted road. Philip answers his question by proclaiming Jesus to him. Literally it is, Philip opened his mouth and gospeled Jesus to him. Because Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news of God. He is the one through whom God is redeeming the world. And one day will make all things new. Philip knows that the suffering servant of Isaiah is none other than Jesus. And starting from this passage, Philip, this passage about the suffering, the, the, the death of the Lord Jesus and his exaltation, and I'm sure talking about other passages that point to the need for repentance and faith and the forgiveness that comes from God and eternal life, Philip proclaims Jesus to the eunuch. It is Jesus who brings the big picture of the scriptures together. Without Jesus, the scriptures make no sense. Every message, every sermon, every Bible study ought to ultimately point to Jesus. How does the eunuch respond? Verses 36 to 38, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 37 may be in the footnotes of your Bible, depending on your version. And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The fourth question, the final one by the eunuch, flows naturally from the previous question. Who is this one? This one is Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus is to be identified with Jesus. The eunuch has trusted in Christ. He is in Christ. Christ is in him. One thing that remains to do is to signify that union through baptism. So the eunuch asks, See, here is water in the middle of a deserted road. Where did that come from? Divine provision, providence. What prevents me from being baptized, he asked. And that's a significant question that we need to let that question sink in. This man is just returning from the temple in Jerusalem, where he was kept uh, from going beyond the court of the Gentiles. And if he had asked this question there, what prevents me from going beyond the court of the Gentiles into the court of the Jews to draw closer to this God, he would have been told, God prohibits you. God prevents you from going forward, as said in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. And maybe the eunuch wonders that maybe that same exclusion still, uh, still applies to him, even though he has now come to God in the new temple, Jesus Christ. But no one who has come to Jesus is prevented from identifying with him. No one who has trusted in Christ is excluded from a relationship with God. And that's why Philip answers his question by baptizing him. His request to be baptized is in itself a confession of faith. No one who draws near to God in Christ Jesus will be excluded. The eunuch has believed in the Lord Jesus, and there's further evidence of that in the last two verses that of this passage, we read in verses 39 and 40, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. 
and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The sign of salvation is joy. He went on his way rejoicing. Philip is snatched away by divine intervention, but the eunuch does not need Philip anymore because he is in an eternal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells him, has united him to the Son of God, and he has a forever fellowship with the God of the universe, and he does not have to travel to Jerusalem. God is with him. No wonder he is rejoicing. The story is not over with the eunuch going home rejoicing. We hear about Philip too. The Spirit catches him up and puts him some 20 miles north of where he met the eunuch in uh, what was formerly known as uh, Ashdod, a town of the Philistines. And from there he makes his way another 50 miles north, all along the way proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, till he comes to Caesarea. And that's the end of uh, Philip, as we know in the book of Acts, till we come to chapter 21, where there's a brief verse that says that he has three daughters who are prophetesses. A prominent evangelist, a great servant of the Lord, fades into obscurity. But does he? Uh, Not to his master. Because the servant is called to be obedient to the calling, to his master's bidding, whether that is to preach the gospel to an entire town of Samaritans, or to a solitary eunuch on a deserted road, or along the way on the road to obscurity, Philip is doing what God had called him to do. This story of Philip and the eunuch is your story and my story because it's first God's story. This is the story of the God who creates all things. This is the God who redeems. This is the God who brings his redeemed into his people by directing his servants to them with the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the God who seeks and finds the lost. This morning, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the good news is you didn't find God, God found you. And there's great uh, hope and confidence in that. No one can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because God sought you and brought you to Himself through faith in Jesus Christ. Because this is the story of God, is the story of Jesus. Who is this one? Philip gospeled Jesus to him. Jesus is the gospel. There is no other name under heaven by which people may be saved. The Jesus Christ who suffered and died for us in our place for our sins, whom God raised from the dead, whom God exalted to his right hand, whom God will send again to make this world anew, to consummate his kingdom. That's the name to be proclaimed by you and me even today. And if you're here this morning and and you are wondering, uh, what will make me right with God in light of all that I have done? I'm a terrible person or uh, there are shameful things in my past. Who will restore me to a right relationship with God? The same one who brought the outcast into God's kingdom on that deserted road is the same name we call upon. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's God's promise. If you believe today that Jesus Christ died for your sins and He rose from the dead, God promises that He will bring you into His kingdom, forgive you of your sins, give you eternal life that no one can take away from you. This is the story of Philip, the evangelist. From the first time we meet him in Acts chapter 6 till here in Acts 8, and then on to the road to obscurity, what we have here is an obedient servant of the God who desires to save all people. He's a chosen instrument in the hands of this desiring God 
who wants to bring Samaritans and outcasts and all sorts of his people, all sorts of people into his kingdom by the proclamation of this good news through his servants. See, uh, the joy that comes from salvation of being chosen and called and saved by this God is a joy worth proclaiming. Actually, God has sent us too. Uh, the question is, will we obey and go like Philip did? Many of our young people obeyed that calling and went to Colorado. Who is God calling you to? Maybe an annoying neighbor. Maybe the, the co-worker who's a thorn on your side. Or the places of business that you frequent. Or another place, uh, another profession. Wherever you go, you go as the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to make the good news of Christ known to a lost and broken world. The question for us is, will we be obedient like Philip? The final story is the story of the eunuch. The conversion of this outcast who's brought into the kingdom of God is your story and my story as well. Because it's the story of God who redeems, who loves his enemies, who brings them into his people by a great cost to himself. We too belong to that story because we too are redeemed by the same God through his son and by his spirit. And the same God has entrusted to us this joy of proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord to a lost and broken world. Will we, like Philip, obey this Lord who has saved us and called us? That will be answered during this week as you go in obedience to his calling. Let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, thank you for telling us this story of how you brought a solitary eunuch on the, in the on a deserted road, to your saving grace as a fulfillment of your promise that one day even eunuchs will be restored to the kingdom of God. You are a God who keeps your promises. And you have saved us and brought us to yourself. And you have called us to proclaim that good news uh, to a world that is lost and broken. And uh, uh, there's endless hostility. And uh, Lord, we need Jesus. And those of us who have him as our Lord and our Savior, help us to proclaim him to the ends of the earth, wherever you may call us, across the street, to our neighbor, to our place of work. Help us to be obedient like Philip was, so that these, two, these people too may come into the joy of salvation and go rejoicing the rest of their lives, even as the eunuch did. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.